You're listening to a message from Highway Church entitled, Take Me to Your Leader, Part 8 of 8. Enjoy. God is good. We're going to finish up a series that we've been in for some time now, and it's called, Take Me to Your Leader. Yeah, we're talking about alien life on planet Earth. Yeah, isn't that fun? It is. You see, before Christ, we used to be aliens to God. We used to be foreign to the promises of God. But when we put our faith in Christ, that all changed. And we were born of his word and born of his spirit, and we became aliens to the world. And we became God's very own sons and daughters. So now we're new creations in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. And now we're his ambassadors in the earth to show forth his goodness everywhere we go. So let's pray. Father, we love you this morning. You are the answer to our dreams to every desire, to every hope. We thank you, Lord God. We delight ourselves in you, and you satisfy the desires of our heart. And we thank you for who you are showing up big in our lives. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to just to have your way in our hearts this morning, to rearrange whatever needs to be rearranged, to fix whatever needs to be fixed, to heal whatever needs to be healed. We rest in your presence, and we let you do what you do best, make whole and lead and provide and guide for us. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, take me to your leader. So we're on earth and we're on a mission to bring people into relationship with Jesus Christ. We've been looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. So if you'll take a look at that, you can turn there in your scriptures. We'll put it up on the screen for you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This is a scripture that tells us who we are in Christ and why we're here which is what this series is all about. So it tells us in 1 Peter 2.9 that you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession. Why? Why has, why has God made us new? Why has he brought us into this family? What is his purpose and mission for us on the earth? That you may proclaim... Some translations say show forth, display the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen. So we finished up last week by saying that it's the goodness of God that transforms us. And it's the goodness of God that needs to be proclaimed and declared and shown in the earth. And we said that the goodness of God is so important that Mark records the opening proclamation of the ministry of Jesus Christ as Jesus declaring the goodness of God. Let's look at that again in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 
verses 13 and following. The goodness of God, it's what changes us. And it needs to be proclaimed and shown forth in the earth. Mark chapter 1, verse 13, talking about Jesus. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. Now after that John, now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the good news. Anytime you see that word gospel, say it's good news. Right? Gospel, that doesn't really mean a whole lot to people. We don't use that word anymore. It literally means the good news. Preaching the good news of the kingdom. Okay? And saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the good news. That's the King James. Let's look at the Phillips translation. Phillips New Testament of verse 15. Reads like this, the time has come at last. Everything you've longed for is found in Christ. The time has come at last. Everything you could ever desire that is good is found in him. The kingdom of God has arrived. Isn't that what Jesus said in his ministry? The kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of God, he said, is within you. Yeah. Right? The kingdom of God has arrived. And look what Philip says here. Um, you must change your hearts and minds and believe the good news. Now, we pointed out that there's a difference between this and the King James, isn't there? The kingdom, King James says, repent and believe the good news. And the Philip says, you must change your hearts and minds and believe the good news. Why do they translate that differently? Well, the, diff the reason is because of the Greek there. The Greek word is not the word repent. The word repent is, it really comes from a Latin word that doesn't have anything to do with what Jesus is saying here. We're going to show you why in a little bit. But the word that's used there is metanoia in the Greek. And I'll read you the definition of metanoia. It means literally to think differently. It means to change your mind and your purpose in light of new information. Have you ever done that in your, in your life? You, had, you were heading in a certain direction, and then you got some new information. So you changed your mind, and you changed your direction. That's what metanoia is. All right? That's what Jesus is talking about. So let's read this verse again with the definition of the Greek in there. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time has come at last. The kingdom of God has arrived. Think differently and believe the good news. Hmm. Let's read it with the second part of the definition in there. The time has come at last. The kingdom of God has arrived. Change your mind and change your purpose and believe the good news. Now, what good news is he talking about? Was he talking about political news? News about the disciples' favorite sports team? No, good news about God. 
He wants you to change your mind and believe the good news about God. Well, now, wait a minute. If we have to change to believe the good news, what were we believing? Bad news about God. Do you know how many people believe that it's God's will for them to be sick? They've been told that by ministers. That's bad news. If we serve a God who wants us to be sick, that's bad news. Do you know how many people have been told that it's God's will for them to, to be without and to be poor? That's bad news. If God, the maker of heaven and earth, it's his will for me to lack and be without. Do you know there are ministers in, in different areas of Christianity that take vows to be poor because they've been told that's more holy? There's nothing true about that. They didn't get that from Jesus. They got it from man's tradition. See, that's bad news. Jesus said, change the way you think in light of this new information, the good news. In other words, look at who I am and base what you believe about God on me, Jesus is saying, right? Change what you believe about God based on who I am. Mm -hmm. Do you know that many base what they believe about God on the tradition they grew up in instead of the person of Christ? I was shocked when I began reading the words of Jesus at 19 because it was so different than the tradition I grew up in. So different. So at Highway Church, we don't base what we believe on the tradition of man, but on the person of Christ. And it causes us to change the way we think in light of his life, in light of his ministry as revealed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And if at any point in time, Man's tradition or religious doctrine contradicts the ministry of Christ. It goes, and we go with the ministry of Christ. We are fearless people. We are bold and courageous people because we know that if God said it, it must be so. So we finished up last week talking about the history of this word repent, and we didn't quite finish, so we're going to pick up there. But historically speaking, God has been largely unknown by man. It, it's, it's almost, I mean, it's, it's sad, definitely sad. It's tragic. But historically, if you, if you study history, and I love to study history, you see that, that, that man has, for the most part, been ignorant of the goodness of God. Not all, but speaking of, of mankind as a whole. And one of the reasons, the, ba the main reason is because of the things that man has chosen to believe about God that are contrary to the ministry of Christ. One of the examples is this word repent. So we're going to look at this, okay? This word repent. Now, I, I shared with you this, the sources that I've taken uh, this, this study from and it's a number of sources, Vines Expository Dictionary and Strong's, 
and International Standard of the Bible Encyclopedia and Baker's Dictionary of Biblical Theology and a number of ministry publications. But I'm going to read to you little snippets from the pages of stuff that I have, just enough so you'll, you'll, you'll understand what we're talking about. We're talking about the history of the word repent. The King James says repent and believe the good news. A source of, of the modern-day confusion lies in the history of the word repent. We get repent, R-E-P-E-N-T, from the Latin word. Now, I don't speak Latin. I'm going to try and say it. Reponetere. I don't know how that's pronounced. And the Latin translation of the Bible, ponitentium agire, which means exercise penitence. Now, was the Bible written in Latin? No. no. What, was it, what was the New Testament written in? Greek. Greek. By who? What, what nation? Hebrews, right? So the New Testament was written in Greek by Hebrews. And the Old Testament was written in Hebrew by Hebrews, okay? So Latin came much later, much later. So the Latin translation, and the, and the most well-known is Jerome's Latin Vulgate, where he began using this word, this Latin word, for exercising penitence, all right? Which actually signifies pain, grief, or distress, rather than a change of thought or mind and purpose. We also get our, our English word penitentiary from this Latin root. <laughs> and that's what religion has become, a penitentiary for memory, right? People are, are bound in the prison of religion, told they've got to do this and this and this and this and this to try and please God. And they're led on this endless path of self-examination. And it's a prison instead of realizing what Christ has done for them. So, keep a little bit more about this. The English word repent is derived from the Latin, reponitere, and inherits the fault of the Latin, making grief the principal idea and keeping in the background, if not altogether out of sight, the fundamental New Testament conception of a change of mind. Until Jerome's Latin Vulgate translation, which was in 382 A.D., right? That's, that's 300 years after Jesus, a little more than that. Um, the word metanoia, the Greek word, was commonly used. Tertullian wrote in 198 A.D. In Greek, metanoia is not a confession of sins, but a change of mind. Now, isn't that like, woo, radically different than what you've grown up with? Right? We're told you've got to come to God, you've got to cry, you've got to say 10 of these prayers, you've got to fall on your face, you've got to spend a lot of time at the altar. Nope, Jesus didn't teach that. It's not in the Bible. It's not a confession of sins, it's a change of mind. But despite this, the Latin fathers began to translate the word as do penance, following a common Roman teaching of the day on doing penance. The dictionary, our dictionary, defines the word penance as voluntary self-punishment. <laughs> Boy, is it ever. Inflicted as an outward expression of repentance for having done wrong. Punishing yourself will in no way atone for your sin. Punishing yourself will in no way set you free from sin. It is of zero spiritual value. Mm. 
penance is of zero spiritual value. I know that's shocking, but you will not find one example of the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, requiring penance of anyone. Not one example, because it's not in there, and it doesn't work. I remember as a boy being told by a minister after I confessed my sins to this minister that I had to wash the dishes for my mom for a week. And I had to say, I forget what it was, a number of these prayers and a number of those prayers, and I had to go to the altar and pray these prayers. And if I did those things, then I'd be forgiven. You know what? It didn't work. I didn't change. There's no heart change there. What it does, it gives you this this false sense of quote-unquote spirituality but no real power. And we're going to see that in the scriptures here in a moment. You see, we all know that we've sinned. We all know that we've blown it to one degree or another. We've all missed out. We've all made a mistake. We've all made decisions we shouldn't make. And you know what's interesting about us? We also know that we deserve to be punished for our sins and that there's got to be some kind of punishment, some kind of payment made for our sins. We know that. I mean, if you do something wrong to someone and you want to make it right, you replace what you've stolen or or what you've broken, right? But the reality is there's nothing we can do to atone for our sins. We can't do enough praying. We can't do enough religious acts and enough good deeds to atone for our sins. Not even 1% of them. But Jesus did. That's why he came. He fully paid the price for every sin you've ever committed or will ever commit. The price for your sins, past, present, and future, has been fully paid. And that's the gospel. How do I receive that? By saying, 10 our fathers? No, by believing the good news. It's by faith. I believe what Jesus did for me. And his righteousness is now imparted to me. Not because I've dotted all my I's and crossed all my T's, but because he loves me and did what he did for you and for me. Now look at this in Romans chapter 8. The Bible has a lot to say about the difference between religion and relationship. A lot to say, because religion wasn't unique to Rome in the 300, in the, you know, the 4th, 5th century. It's something that the fallen nature gravitates towards. Right. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how much condemnation is there for you? Zero. Zero. Right? Big goose egg. Right? Because through Christ Jesus... The law of the spirit of life has set you free, set me free from the law of sin and death. Look at verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did. By sending his own son, God did what we could never do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin 
in sinful man. Notice he didn't condemn man. He condemned sin in man. Big difference. Churches shouldn't be condemning people. And boy, have I heard a lot of that in my life, right? God condemns sin, not man. He loves man. He doesn't condemn man. Condemnation is not from our Father. Never has been, never will be. That's not Him. All right? Now, in order that, verse 4, in order that, He did all this. Look at this. That the righteous requirements of the law might be 23% met in us. Hey, that's better than 22%, isn't it? No. That the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met, completely met, 100% met in you. Who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. And the enemy will try and say, well, you don't live according to the Spirit. You made a mistake. Well, verse 9 tells us differently. I don't have time to read the whole chapter, but verse 9 says this. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and He does. Just because you're tempted doesn't mean you're controlled by it. And what I began to do as I learned this number of years ago, when temptation would come in any area of my life, I would begin to say, I'm dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'm dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And it's worked every time. Because who you are in Christ is greater than any temptation the enemy can ever bring against you. We're dead to sin. We're not controlled by the sinful nature. We're controlled by the Spirit of God who's living, who's taken up residence in us. So this is a part of our mission, letting people know the good news. Your sins are already forgiven. The price has already been paid. All you've got to do is receive that and believe that. Boy, is that different than what people have heard. Wow. Let's look at this in Colossians chapter 2. Boy, I wish we had time to read the whole chapter. We're going to read a bunch of it. It's so powerful. It talks about this very thing, looking to the tradition of men instead of the person of Christ. So know that that's what we're all about at Highway Church. We're, 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 we're zeroed in on the person of Christ because life is all about knowing him. And man's tradition so often gets in the way of that. All right? So look at Colossians chapter 2. Let's start in verse 8. Wow, is this powerful. Look at this. See to it that no one takes you captive. Penance coming from the same word as penitentiary. No one puts you in jail. Don't let anyone take you captive. How? How can someone take you captive? Through philosophy and empty deception, according to what? The tradition of man. Boy, was I a captive. I grew up a captive. According to the elementary principles of the world. See, elementary principles of the world, one of them is, if I sin, I deserve to be punished. And the law says, if you sin, you die. We all understand that, of course. But what what man doesn't understand is God's amazing grace. 
that, that he's given us what we don't deserve. Religion tilts on that, can't, can't grasp that. You're telling me that God has forgiven you and made you his righteousness? They can't comprehend that, but he's done it. He's done it. So if the elementary principles of the world can't handle the goodness of God rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now you're ready for verse 10. And in him you have been made What else is left to be done? Know him, follow him, live for him. We've been made complete. And he's the head. He says, he's the one who's done this. Anyone disagrees with him, they're wrong. He's the head. He's the Lord over all rule and authority. Let's jump to verse 13 for time's sake. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, what did he do? Laughed at you and shook his head and said, shame on you. No, he made you alive together with him. Having forgiven us of 74%, no, of all our transgressions. So how many of your sins are forgiven? 100%. What about, you know, what about that one that was, you know, just a few days ago that you really messed up? All. Who said that? The head says this. The king says this. If you disagree, talk to him, right? All our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Amen. Let's go to verse 16. Therefore, because of what Jesus has done, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festivals or a new moon or a Sabbath day. I was told on certain days I couldn't eat certain things growing up. I had to do certain things. Don't let anyone judge you in regards to these elementary principles of the world. There's no power in them. Look at verse 17. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you. Of your prize. Wow. By delighting in self abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as don't handle, don't taste? Don't touch. Heard so much of that growing up. So many things I could and couldn't do, right? Why do you submit to that? Why do you let someone defraud you of the abundant life Christ came to give you in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? Verse 23, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom. Sure. I can, I can wear a, a certain uniform representing my denomination of Christianity. I can have an appearance of being spiritual, right? They have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion. It's just the Bible we're reading. I didn't write this before I came. The appearance of, I'm just remembering back when I first read this, I was so shocked. It was the, I said, what have I grown up with? 
What have I been told? The appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. Now here's the kicker. But are of no value. How much value? Zero. <laughs> right? I don't know how to make a zero, but it's it. Zero. No value what? Against fleshly indulgence. They, are, they will not help you overcome sin. They are of no value. They'll give you this false sense of holiness. But in reality, you are not walking in the victory and abundant life Christ came to give you. Hallelujah. So when did man's thinking change? When did all this goofy stuff start? Well, it actually happened quite a while ago, about 6,000 years ago in the Garden of Eden. But we're going to close. We're going to go back to Genesis. Let's go back to Genesis. We'll finish up with this. We have one more scripture after this in Romans. But let's go back to when this actually changed. So Jesus comes. Now, Adam, the Bible calls Adam the first Adam and calls Jesus the last Adam. The, the, the wrong thinking, the believing bad things about God started with the first Adam. So the last Adam, Mark records the first words out of his mouth is change your thinking and believe the good news about God. I'm here. Don't keep, don't keep believing what the first Adam believed. Believe, believe what, who I am. Believe the good news that I'm demonstrating before you. So way back in Genesis chapter 2, We'll start in verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden. Does anyone know what Eden means? Pleasure. Delight. Wow. Place of God's presence. All right, we're going to have to back up. It's a scripture I've got to tell you. It's a part of the good news. Keep Hold your place there in Genesis. What does Eden mean? Pleasure and delight, right? right. Jesus came preaching the good news. What, what, how could we sum up the good news? Is there one statement Jesus made that would sum up the good news? Well, there's several, but I'm picking John 10.10 10 this morning. Can you put that up there, Eden, John 10.10? 10. I wanted to say this earlier, but we'll say it now. Change your thinking and believe the good news about God instead of bad news. This is what Jesus said. This is what he wants us to believe. That it's the thief that comes not, but for to steal and kill and destroy. Is God a thief? So God's not about killing, stealing, and destroying, right? Who is? Satan, Satan sure. You have an adversary. But why did Jesus come? Well, he tells us. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Let's put that up there in the uh, message translation. This is Jesus talking, right? The head. I came so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. Amen. You know, you first read that, and if you've been into a, you know, steeped in religion, you're kind of like, ooh, that can't be true. <laughs> read verse Amplified. Let's do the Amplified. I came that they might have and enjoy life. Censor! Can't say enjoy as a Christian. Why'd they have to put that in there? Because that's what he wants. He put man in the center of his pleasure. The garden of his pleasure. I came that they might have and enjoy life. Does a good father want that? 
Of course. See how tradition has robbed so many of the abundant life that Christ came to give them? He came that you would have and enjoy life when? Now. And have it in abundance to the full till it overflows. Hallelujah. All right, now let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. I wanted you to see the gospel in Jesus' own words. So he takes the man that he's made in his own image and he places him in the garden of his pleasure. Wow. Man didn't ask. This was not man's initiative at all. And verse 16, and the Lord commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. And I want to tell you, there was a lot of beautiful trees and food there. And it was all his. And as a loving father, in verse 17, he said, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. It says in the English, in the the Hebrew, it's die, die. In other words, you will die two deaths. You'll die spiritually and physically. Why would God tell them the same reason any good father would tell their child what would happen if they would do something that's deadly? Because he wants them to live and enjoy life. All right, now here we go. Going to finish it up. Genesis 3. So he, he makes man in his image. He, he gives him authority over the entire earth. He sets them in the center of his pleasure. And he says, this is all yours, but do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of, go, of, of good and evil. I don't want you to die. I want you to live forever. Right? right? Now, Satan was in the earth in this time. We know that from studying the scriptures. But he had no authority in the earth. Okay? Because God gave it to man. So man was in authority over Satan, so Satan couldn't do anything. But Satan's a schemer, isn't he? If you don't need that, know that, you need to know that about him. He has schemes against you. We're not ignorant of his schemes. Well, his scheme was he wanted the earth. He wanted, he wanted to, to what? John 10.10, 10, steal, kill, and destroy. What did he want to steal? Well, he, he was shrewd. He knew if he could steal the authority that God gave Adam, he could kill Adam, right? So if, you, if, you're, if you're a good thief, you're very clever in how you operate. You get so good at it, people don't even know what you're doing, right? He's very clever. So in verse 1 of Genesis 3, this clever, shrewd thief comes to, to Adam and Eve as a serpent. More crafty than any beast of the field, so he didn't have authority. He had to enter a physical body in the earth to speak to them, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Indeed. So, what's his strategy here? What's he trying to do? He's trying to see how well she knows God's promises. Right? Because if he doesn't know him well, he's got an avenue. He's got an in, right? So he wants to see, how well does she remember what he said? Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. So far, so good, right? Because God did say that. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it. Did he say that? Warning, warning, Will Robinson. Warning, warning. Or you will die. When you start adding to what God requires, 
you open the door for deception. And religion has added slowly over the years a long list of what man says God requires. And it has deceived so many and enabled Satan to rob, steal, and kill. He did not say that. And a green light went on, I'm sure, inside of Satan. <laughs> she didn't remember very well. She didn't remember. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, now he's got her on the ropes. You won't die. You surely will not die. Now what's he doing? He's getting her to believe that God is a liar. Is that good news? If the God who made you lies, that's bad news. Change your thinking and believe the good news. It all started here. Verse 5, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, this God who made you, he has schemes against you. He's afraid of you. He's insecure. He lied to you because he's afraid that if you eat that, you're going to take over. Wow. What a liar, huh? They were made in the image of God, weren't they? He lied to them about who God was and who they were. And he does the same to us today. And they believed him. And they believed him. You see, Satan's number one strategy in your life is to try and get you to question the goodness of God. Because what is faith? Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. How can you be sure and certain of the promises of God if he's not good? You can't. You may as well, you know, spin the wheel or, or try your hand at a casino. If God's sometimes good and sometimes bad, we don't have any faith. Right. How can I have faith to be healthy if I'm not sure that it's God's will for me to be healthy? I can't. Biblically speaking, you cannot have faith for something if you're not sure of it, because right. that's what faith is. So you see, that's Satan's number one strategy, to put question marks in your mind and heart about God's will for you so that you can't have faith to receive it. So those question marks block what God wants to do in your life and give the enemy an inroad so that he can begin to steal from you, so that he can get you to believe these things. But thank God Jesus came. Yes, our last scripture, our last scripture. See, Paul said something very powerful in Romans chapter 1. And let's read it. Romans chapter 1 Verse 16, he said, I'm not ashamed of the good news. I mean, why is it called the gospel? Because there's so much bad news that was being preached in temples and churches, giving people the wrong idea of God. And Paul, in the midst of it all, says, I'm not ashamed to tell people that God is good. Yeah regardless of how they might criticize me. I'm not ashamed of the good news of Christ. Look at this. For it is the power of 
God unto salvation to everyone that believes. For therein, in the goodness of God, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So now we know Satan's number one strategy, and I want you to catch him red-handed this week. Anytime a thought comes into your mind, we're causing you to, or wanting you to question God's will from you, go to John 10.10. He came that I might have more and better life than I've ever dreamed of. He came that I might have life and have it abundantly, that I might have and enjoy life. It's God's will for me to be well. It's God's will for me to prosper and to go forward in everything that he has for me. And I'm not going to give any airtime in my mind to these schemes of the enemy. I choose to believe the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came for me. Hallelujah. He came that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. And so concludes our series. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we've had in your word. We thank you for this time we've had in your presence. God, you're amazing. You're so different than the religion and the traditions of man. Your life, your pure unadulterated, unhindered life. And we surrender to the absolute abundance of you in our lives. And we say, Jesus, go. Have your way in us. Bring about your will in our lives just as it is in heaven. Life and life abundantly. In Jesus' name. As we're praying right now, Father, I lift up everyone who's here. And Lord, I pray that by your spirit right now, you would shine the light on any wrong thinking here in any of our lives, in any corners of our mind, wrong beliefs that that we've had about you that may have come from religious tradition or from, from a number of different places. Holy Spirit, shine your light right now. Show those things up. Reveal those things to us right now that we would replace them with who you really are right now. (laughs) That we get on your path for our lives and begin to go forward in the abundant life you have for us. In Jesus' name. At Highway Church, we want to help you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ and experience the abundant life He came to give you. If you'd like to learn more about God's amazing love for you, please visit us at highwaychurch.us. You can email us at info at highwaychurch.us or message us via our Facebook page. Put your trust in Jesus today and taste and see how good He is.